in the letter, Paul's letter to the Romans. And today we're in chapter 7. We'll finish chapter 7. Our text is verses 13 to 25. Let me just say at the outset that this has been a difficult passage for believers to understand throughout the centuries ever since it was written. One commentator said that it's one of the most widely debated portions of Scripture in the history of biblical interpretation. Well, that assertion itself might be highly debatable, (laughs) but we uh, should approach these verses with humility, as we should all of God's Word, um, because it is a difficult passage with genuine believers having differing opinions about it. Um, But I believe with Peter in his second letter, where he said that there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. Maybe he was thinking about this passage, but he didn't say they're impossible to understand. We have the Holy Spirit that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Paul also wrote that. So I believe with confidence we should turn to this passage and uh, believe that the Lord is going to meet us and give us food for our soul. So let's read Romans 7, 13 to 25, and then pray. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Lord, let us not miss the encouragement you want us to have. There's a lot of talk here about sin, captivity, and so forth. 
And yet in this bigger context of the whole chapter, there's also freedom. There's also a new life. There's being alive to God. So how do these things work together? How is this description uh, fit with our experience? We ask you to make it clear, as you can and will by the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage gives hope to believers in Jesus who are tempted to doubt and discouragement after you sin. That's what I believe it's for. Maybe you can relate this morning to Paul's statement in verse 15, where he says, I do not understand my own actions, (laughs) for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Have you not been in that situation? Have you not at times done something that you knew was wrong, you didn't really want to do it, you weren't planning on doing it, but you did it anyway, and afterwards you felt terrible? Maybe you got mad at someone and then you let them have it, (laughs) and afterwards you had to apologize. Maybe you were trying to exercise self-control, but you spent money you don't have. You ate more than you knew was good for you. Maybe you were trying to have a pure thought life, but you clicked on that image or on that video, and it led you to porn. Maybe you keep worrying about your future, even though you know that the promises of God are that He won't forsake you. I'm pretty confident you've had experiences like that. I know I have. And after we fall into such things, like Paul, we might think, why did I do that? I don't understand my own actions. And without understanding, our minds can go into a lot of unprofitable places as we try and think through our failures. We can start to wonder, Am I even genuinely saved if I still do things like that? Or we might think, I'm never going to win this battle over sin. It's just too much for me. And we can become discouraged and we can be feeling defeated. Well, this passage was given so we might understand our own actions when we fall into sin, even as genuine believers in Jesus Christ. It gives us perspective about why we still do what is wrong, even though we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And in that perspective, it gives you hope that your struggle is not unique and it's not permanent, that there are victories over sin in this life, and there's a day coming when the struggle against sin will be over, and you will be the victor. That's what we're going to see this morning. Now, before we walk through the text, I first need to explain why this passage is widely debated (laughs) and maybe the most debated in all of history. I don't know. But it boils down to this question. Is Paul describing here the experience of the true Christian or the experience of a non-Christian? That question arises because in the passage there are several statements that sound like descriptions of someone who's genuinely a believer, somebody awakened by the Spirit of God to new life, and then there's other statements that sound like descriptions of the person who's still in bondage to sin, somebody who's not truly born again. 
So here's some of the statements that sound like a Christian person. Verse 16, I agree with the law that it is good. <laughs> that is God's law. Verse 18, I have the desire to do what is right. 22, I, I, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. 25, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. That all sounds like a person who is alive to God, to use Romans 6.11 language. That sounds like Romans 6.17, the person who has become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That's a saved, regenerate person, this sounds like. But then there's other statements that sound like they apply to somebody who's not that, somebody who's not a Christian. Verse 14, he says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Verse 18, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Verse 23, I see in my members another law making me captive to the law of sin. Verse 25, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That doesn't sound like a person who is, according to Romans 6, 11, dead to sin. It, doesn't, it, it sounds more like Romans 6, 17, those who were once slaves of sin. It sounds like the unsaved, unregenerate person. So those conflicting descriptions are the reason it has been debated whether Paul is really talking about a Christian or a non-Christian experience here. Now, I take the view that he is talking about himself as a Christian. And along the way, I'm going to point to why I think that. But let me just give you one reason up front. This passage accomplishes something that would be lacking if it were just a restatement of our, our experience as non-Christians. It gives us hope that our ongoing struggle with sin doesn't mean that our freedom from sin's power isn't real. You see, chapters 6 and 7 have painted a very compelling picture of our freedom from the power of sin as believers. Romans 6.22 says, You have been set free from sin. You, believer, are like a former slave who has been emancipated, released out from under the power of the tyrant who forced you to do things. But we all know from experience, don't we, that we still sin. And that sometimes sin seems very much like a master. In the moment that you say yes to it, you feel compelled. So what do we do with that disconnect? How do we make our experience with sin line up with these lofty statements that you're freed from it? Well, if this passage isn't about the struggle of the actual Christian, then it doesn't speak to that. It doesn't have any answers for that. What makes much more sense to me is that Paul, as he has done throughout these chapters is anticipate our questions and our problems with the implications of the gospel. He anticipates the, the discouragement that can rise up in our souls when we compare this statement, you have been set free from sin with our actual experiences with sin as believers. 
So I proceed with the understanding that Paul is talking about the experience of the true Christian and that this is in the Bible to encourage us that it's not a surprise and that it's not the whole story. Things are better than you think. So let's go to the passage and look into it. We'll start with verse 13, which is a recap of what was said in 7 to 12. Paul says, The law of God is good, but it is our sin that is bad. The law of God is good, it is our sin that is bad. Verse 13 asks and answers the question, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So we learned last week that one of the functions of the law of God, his moral commands, is to provide a standard against which we can know what is and what is not sin. So it is God saying, you shall not covet, that shows us that our craving for what doesn't belong to us is wrong. It shows us that that is sin. And so the, the law acts like a mirror, and it shows us our true selves. It shows us how far we've fallen from what we were created to be. And it's a good mirror. There's nothing wrong with it. The problem is, is with our sin. So Paul says sin it produced death in him through the good law. That is, once he understood the law's real character and its demands, he realized his true sinfulness. And it killed his self-perception of being a holy man, of being a man alive to God. It condemned him as a sinner, and it left him no hope for life except to run to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, to run to him and his righteousness, to be given to you through faith. That would be the only way that he could truly be alive to God is if he's united to Jesus. So Paul can rightly say, through the commandment, sin became sinful beyond measure. It's, it's like saying, he didn't realize how black it was until you laid it up against pure white. The comparison of the sin we do against the standard that we break magnifies our awareness of how bad it really is. Now that's an important starting point because what Paul what follows in verses 14 to 25 is an expanded reflection on the sinfulness of sin and the goodness of the law. Because he starts with verse 14 with the word for. For. In other words, here's the further evidence. Here's my expanded argument about the sinfulness of sin and the goodness of the law. You want to know how bad sin is? Well, here's how bad. For. And then follows his description of the struggle that he still has with sin, even though he's alive to God. That even though he is free from sin's ruling power, it still has its hooks in him and gives him no end of trouble. So three points of observation about what he says. First one is this. Every Christian has a struggle with sin. Every Christian has a struggle with sin. The emphasis there is that there is a struggle. A struggle. Everyone sins. 
Christian or not, but Christians struggle against it for the very reason that they are alive to God. And we don't want to sin anymore because we have a new affection for God. We see that struggle introduced in verses 14 and 15. He says, we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. There's the struggle. Paul says, I hate sin, and yet I still do it. I know, we believers know that God's law is spiritual, that it originates from God who is spirit. It is a good law, and I want to do it, but despite that, I still do what's wrong, so I don't understand that. Now, he doesn't mean he doesn't understand it at all, because he's going to tell us exactly why he sins. And why we sin, even as believers. But he's speaking almost like an outside observer after he, see, after he sinned. It's like he's saying to himself, man, are you crazy? <laughs> you know, why did you do that? You probably ask yourself the same question when you've sinned. And the reality of it hits you in the face. Why did I do that? I know better. Well, Paul does have an answer, and his answer is, that I am of the flesh, or literally fleshly, sold under sin. Sold as in, sold as a slave, under the mastery of sin. So what does he mean by that? Well, as I mentioned before, this sentence is one of the ones that convince some that Paul is speaking about his non-Christian experience. The argument is that present tense doesn't always mean present time. So that he could be talking in the first person about something that happened in the past when he says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. So like you might relate to somebody a story. And you might talk like this. So I'm driving down the road and this deer jumps in front of me and I swerve to miss it. Right? I'm talking present tense, but you know I'm not talking about right now. I'm talking about something that happened. Right, So some would say that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying I am, but he's talking like that. He's retelling the story of what happened before so that when he says I am of the flesh, we are understanding he means I was of the flesh sold under sin. What else could he mean? given the reality that believers are freed from the slavery of sin. However, the most natural reading of the passage is that when Paul says, I am, he actually means, I am, and not, I was. He means that this is a present state of affairs. I am fleshly, sold under sin, even though what I already told you is also true which is that all believers, including myself, have been set free from sin. Both are true. Well, how can they both be true? Well, perhaps the simplest way to explain it is like this. The liberation from sin's slavery is real, but not complete. That is, it has not worked its way into every corner of our beings yet. 
there are still times when we do what Paul told us not to do in Romans 6, 12. There he said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. He says to genuine Christians who are freed from the enslaving power of sin, don't let it reign. Don't let it have control. Don't let it make you obey. That sounds like language of slavery. That sounds like being sold under sin. So here's the point. Just because you're free from sin doesn't mean you always live that way. You can still, at times, put yourself back under the reign of sin. You can let it make you obey as if you were its captive. And then once you've done it, you realize you did the very thing you hate. In that moment, you acted like a slave to your former master. Doesn't that describe every time we fall into sin as believers? At least it should. Because if you're truly alive to God, if His Spirit is within you, you can't be comfortable with your sin. You can't keep doing it without that pang of conscience. Because Paul is going to go on to say in verse 22, I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. That's a good description of the regenerated person. The true you, the new you, the you in your heart of hearts is the person who delights in God's law. Your affections have changed toward Him, and you want to walk in what He wants for your life. But sin still has a strong influence, does it not? We have what are called besetting sins, the ones that are hard to break because of habit. We really feel captive to them in the moment. For me, I would like to think that I'm done with the fear of man, which is doing or saying things to make somebody like me, to feel better about myself, to avoid conflict. But I caught myself doing that this week. And afterwards I thought, ah, <laughs> I did the very thing I hate. I obeyed the fear of man. We do that sometimes. And why do we do it? Because though we are liberated from sin as a ruling power, that liberation isn't absolute, it isn't complete. It hasn't worked its way into every corner of our being. We are saved, but there is an incompleteness to our salvation. We are in the now and the not yet stage of it. Yes, forgiven. Yes, accepted by God. Yes, no longer a slave to sin. But there's a part of you that hasn't yet been fully transformed into the likeness of Christ, that part that retains some affinity for the fallen world and the temptations that are there. It's often called indwelling sin because twice in verses 17 and 20, Paul says that it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. In other words, I don't do it out of the true me, the regenerated me, the new creation in Christ who delights in the law of God in my inner being. I do it because there's still that residual unholy desire in there. 
in this fallen body, in this fallen world. That's what Paul means by I am of the flesh, sold under sin. He's not talking about total or permanent domination. That was true of you before Christ. He's not talking about that. He's talking about occasions in which you do what you do not want. Those are moments in which sin sometimes feels like this foreign power that has compelled you. You don't want to do it, and yet you did. You didn't intend to click on that video, but you did. You didn't intend to say those harsh words, but you did. You didn't intend to act in cowardly fear, but you did. And he makes it clear that when you do that, it isn't descriptive of who you are in the whole person, in the new person. It wasn't you who do it, but sin that dwells in you. It's coming from that part of you where sin still has a foothold. Now, that might sound like strange talk, as if there's something that's you and something that's not you in you. <laughs> but that's basically the same thing we mean when we say something like, I wasn't myself today, right? We're saying, that's not really a good representation of who I am as a whole person. That's not the true me. We know that we still had the bad day. It didn't happen to somebody else, but it wasn't the whole story. You could reword what Paul was saying this way. Sin is not who I am, but it is what I do, though I don't want to. That's the struggle of the Christian life. Paul had that struggle. I have that struggle. Every believer has that struggle. So here's one encouragement from that. It does mean your struggle with sin isn't unique. This happens to all Christians. This happened to the Apostle Paul. <laughs> your experience isn't strange. It doesn't mean you aren't a true Christian who is alive to God and freed from the threat of the law and who is united to Christ and bearing fruit for God. You can be all of that and still sin. It just means you're a work in progress like everybody else. <laughs> if you weren't struggling with sin, if you do it because you don't hate it, if it doesn't make you cry out with Paul, wretched man that I am, then you should be concerned. Because the struggle is the evidence that you have been changed. No struggle argues for no change. It argues for not being truly regenerated in Christ. But I know that most of us, that's not the situation. You do what you do not want to do. Not continuously, not as a settled course of life, but in moments of failure. And Paul would say, that's normal. Don't despair. But that's not where this ends. There's more to say. Otherwise, we might think, well, then I can't make any progress of holiness. I just got to live with sin all the rest of my life. I can never expect tomorrow to be better than the day. We don't want to go there. That wouldn't be a complete picture. Sin does not dominate you. It is not your master. So here's the second observation. Sin is not the superior power in the struggle. Sin is not the superior power in the struggle. 
Again, putting this in the context of who we are as believers in Jesus, Romans 6, 6 says this, we know that our old self was crucified with him. That is the old unregenerate me as a slave to sin. That me is dead. That's gone when Jesus died. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Believers are no longer enslaved to sin. We start there. That's the the big perspective over this chapter. You're not a slave. That's our starting point. The dominion is over. The enslaving power is broken. Sin is like a dethroned tyrant that has been replaced by the reign of grace, according to Romans 5.21. But it hasn't completely gone away. It still wants to gain mastery. It still exerts influence. So it is within that context where Paul speaks of of the struggle with sin. In verses 21 to 23, he speaks of it in warlike terms. He says this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There we see the reality of this now and not yet of your salvation. The genuine believer delights in the law of God, in his inner being. It's not just lip service. It's not just zeal for the law that even a Pharisee could have, like Paul in his non-Christian days. No, this is the inner being we're talking about here. This is the heart of hearts. This is my true devotion. This is something true only of a regenerated person. But guess what, he says, evil lies close at hand. And, when we, and it's ready to pounce when we seek to do what the law says. It's like this guerrilla force hiding in the jungle, in the still unsanctified parts of our being, ready to make a raid whenever we are going in the right direction, wants to interfere with our goals. Paul likens this warfare to two opposing laws. There's the law of my mind and there's the law of sin. Law here means a principle at work, not a set of rules that one is required to follow. It's more like a force or a power that results in certain outcomes. And there are opposing laws or forces or principles at work here within the believer. We could describe them this way. He says, the law of my mind is that I want to do what the law of God says. Verse 25, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. My mind is ordered and it's directed by the law of God. I delight in it. I want to go his way. That's the real me now as a saved person. That's the main force directing my life. But there's this other law at work in my members. Paul says it's the law of sin. This is the usurper who won't leave. This is the one who wants to regain control, who wants to wage war against my desires for holiness. And it gets in the way. It's what Paul says in verse 25, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This force gains its power through my own bodily weaknesses and remaining openness to sin. Sin finds this foothold in my members, in the not yet 
part of my salvation. Now, if we left it at that, we might think, well, who's going to win the battle <laughs> day by day? Which one's stronger? Because it sounds like sin is stronger. I mean, Paul says, I, I'm captive to the law of sin. That doesn't sound promising. <laughs> and when you fall into sin for the 100th time, you might think, wow, sin is the stronger power. Sin is winning. And here's where we need to note two things from the text. First of all, if the contest were just between your own willpower and with sin, then sin is going to win. Because sin is more powerful than you, just your own resources. When Paul says, I want to do right, it's literally, I will or I resolve to do right. And what he finds is that willpower or resolve isn't enough. The evil that I do not want, the evil I do not will or resolve to do, is what I keep on doing. Willpower or resolve isn't enough. That's not a power that can defeat sin by itself. You and I can't defeat sin simply by saying to ourselves, I'm going to stop worrying. Or I'm going to stop craving people's approval. Or I'm going to stop looking at porn. You know why that won't work. It's because that's trying to become sanctified by the law. And we've already seen that the law gives you no power for change. It only tells you the standard. It doesn't help you keep it. What you and I need to become more holy, to bear fruit for God, is to rely on the Spirit of God who has been given to us by being joined to Christ by faith. His being resident within us is the power that overcomes sin. And that's the second thing to notice from this passage. You'll notice the Holy Spirit is never mentioned in these verses of having to do with the struggle. The description is purely of one person's will versus indwelling sin. And some people point to this absence of the Spirit as proof that Paul is talking about his life experience before being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But actually, it's necessary to talk this way because that does describe what happens when we come captive under some sin. We stop relying on the Spirit, our hearts stray from Christ, and we are left operating in our own strength. Now, make no mistake, resolve is necessary. The intentionality to do something, to put away sin, is part of the struggle. Jesus said in, in Mark 9.47, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. <laughs> it will sometimes take eye-gouging zeal to resist sin, but resolve isn't enough. Change has to happen by another power, by a greater power, and that power is the Holy Spirit who lives within us. That power is the power of a changed life. That power is the power of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. The Spirit is the power behind our change and our embracing and our living out of the reality of this new us. Christians do a lot of things without depending on the Spirit. 
which is why we fall into sin. We do a lot of things from the flesh. Paul is not ashamed to say that in the realm of my flesh, nothing good dwells in me. He's willing to say that. He says, I'm undone if this struggle comes down to me apart from the Spirit. What we're going to see in chapter 8, where Paul talks about this more, is that by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. We'll see what that looks like when we get there, but know this, friends, the Spirit of God, the life of God that is in us through our union with Jesus is the power to overcome sin, and that is a power that sin cannot win against. It's not just you versus sin. It's you set free from sin's ruling power. It's no longer you under the threat of God's punishment for sins. It's you released from the binding threat of the law. It's you living under the smile and acceptance of God, under the reign of grace. It's you indwelt by God Almighty Himself. It's that you versus your sin. Sin is not the superior power in the struggle. God is, and He is on your side. <laughs> this life will not be victories all the time. That wasn't the case for Paul. It won't be the case for you or me. But neither will it be all failures. Your trajectory by the power of the Spirit, by your union with Jesus, is ever towards holiness. Day by day, there are victories. That leads to the last point. Because there is going to come a day when the struggle will be over and the victory won. So last point, your ultimate victory over sin is guaranteed. Your ultimate victory over sin is guaranteed. Verse 24 and the beginning of 25 isn't the last word in this chapter, but it's the emotional and theological high point. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is the cry of every true believer in the struggle. It's the yearning to be free from the now and not yet of our salvation. It's the yearning to enter into our full salvation, untouched by sin and sinning no more. This body of death is the body in which sin still has a place to work against our experience of new life. And we want to be free from that, don't we? Don't you feel that longing? Do you not want to be done having to confess another thing you did? Do you not want to have a day or even an hour, without sin. But to do only right and good and beautiful things. Well, that longing will be fulfilled. 
Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you know when you'll be satisfied? When he comes again and ushers in the new creation. I think one of the most appealing descriptions about the new heaven and earth is in Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nothing that is stained with sin. That's the deliverance that Paul wanted. That's the deliverance every true regenerated person wants. And that's the deliverance that is guaranteed through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When he returns in his triumphant day of complete victory over sin and evil, then comes the deliverance from this body of death. Then comes the immortal body, never to die again and never to sin again. It is sure. It is coming. It is how things end for every believer. Meanwhile, we will live in the now and the not yet. Where we will serve with our mind the law of God. That's the real you. That's the new you. With the flesh, we will still serve the law of sin. We're not completely saved yet. Positionally, absolutely. Reality, yes. But experience, we're still a work in progress. But we know where the work ends. He has us. We will get there to a day of complete victory. Let's pray. Such a relief to know, Lord, that we don't battle anything by ourselves. You're with us day by day, every day to help us overcome. And when we don't overcome, when we let sin reign, you still come to us again with the reminder, but you belong to me now. (laughs) I love you. You're mine. There's no threat now. Thank you for that. I don't know what everybody came in here with, Lord, but you do, and I pray that you would make this truth, whatever part of it that you wanted for them to hear, sink into their soul and bring about a new hope and a new strength to get through to the next day and through life. I know you will. Thank you in Jesus' name.